Hey folks, I'm Kevin Sullivan, and this is the 21 Gun Podcast, the official podcast of the Irreverent Warriors. This is part four of The Terrorist Whisperer, Hamidi Jazim. He tells an amazing story about how he helped troops in Iraq survive terrorist plots against them. Be sure to head over to 21gun.net to check out everything 21gun and head over to irreverentwarriors.com to see the latest on when the next hike is going to be, which will be June 13th out in Wilmington, North Carolina. I hope to see you guys there. I'm going to be there. And um, yeah, I think I think we all need this <laughs> right about now. So without further ado, Hamidi Jazim, the terrorist whisperer. Hamidi starts this part of his story uh, when he is put in charge of the Iraqi Ministry of Defense as a young guy. Remember, he's 19, and now he's a command sergeant major. His job was to keep the Americans alive at any cost. Then, 200 armed Al-Qaeda fighters arrived to the MOD under the guise that they were a security team for the newly appointed Minister of Defense. Little did the Americans know these terrorists were plotting to capture and kill an American officer. When I saw that immediately, I'm like, I'm going down. I'm like, the MOD has fallen officially, and I don't know what their next moves are, but I better be prepared. So I went back, I pulled all my NCOs, all my unit, all the best guys I have. The best soldiers I have in that unit was called the PSD team, members that I trained with since 2004. Very smart guys, high elite, they're more modern, uh, they think very fast. And I assigned about 17, 18 of them to go inside of the building and their job was to be in a different corner in every building in every side in that building and we made a plan that if anything happens of any sort that we have their job is to collect the Americans that are inside and take a proper way back to the grain zone so we put a plan if something happened they do an attack or something how can we get the rest of the Americans out how can we evacuate them get them out and without anything happening. So I put my best guys inside of the building. And I put them there, and they deployed everywhere. And I put one of them right in front of the minister's office himself. And it was an order. I said, oh, this soldier is always going to be here. And they're like, why is this guy here? I said, well, he's gonna, always going to be here, and his job is to be here. So he said among them, he watched all their movement, everything. And he would call on the radio if he sees anything. If any one of them go to a side of the building they're not supposed to be, I immediately would get a call. And within like literally days, they were in a shocking moment is like they came from the Umbar. They see that there's something in front of them. They went back to the Umbar province. Of course, they switch shifts and they go. And they realize if there was if there was one place in Iraq they could attack to kidnap an American, it's that building. So information got transferred back to Al Qaeda leadership that. This is the perfect place to not kidnap any American, not a KBR guy. We're going to pick, pick up a, a f- someone of a high rank. Perhaps they started figuring out the ranks to know what the ranks mean. They were asking people what the flower meant, what the dark flower meant, what the full bird meant. And they're asking people, so what does that rank mean? They will say, oh, well, the highest rank is lieutenant colonel, a colonel. These are the higher ranks of people that come into the building. So you realize a lieutenant colonel to a colonel, that's what they needed to shoot for. And that was where they were putting these plans. And, of course, the U.S. intelligence team that I was attached to and the MOD, their job was not to collect intelligence. Their job was to take intelligence from the Iraqi Operations Center and brief to General Petraeus or General Casey every morning. So nobody had really any eyes on these guys are. 
I was the only one doing this on my own, trying to watch their steps. And then all of a sudden, at one night, they showed up around 11, 15, 11, 30 at night with 150 of them without the ministry. You have to understand, the only reason I knew I went to war at that time is because the only reason for them to be in my building is to be with that guy because they're pretending to be his security guards. But when they show up without him, something is going down. And I don't know what their plan was. And perhaps the, the same day, they brought a truck that lift T-walls. Because my whole building is, is surrounded by a nine-foot concrete walls. No cars can come in. No cars can come out. And they can come from the green zone because they issued Iraqi MOD badges to, to, with the, to be with the minister. And once they came in at that time of the night, I had only about maybe five to six Americans that works there during the night for the Iraqi Operations Center. And that's where my job is to make sure these guys are safe. I have a radio that's on 24 hours. And I got a call on the radio from the checkpoint. And they said, hey, um, the Minister of Defense Security detail just entered and is fully loaded, but there's no minister. I said, well, it's his car because he had an armored Mercedes. I said, well, is he with him? They're like, no, there's no armored Mercedes, but just all of them here. I said, well, are they armed? They said, yeah, they're all armed. They're all carrying the, you know, the AK-47s and everything, and they got out. So by the time they got out, I got in immediately. I said, I don't want to take any chances. I have to run and evacuate these Americans. Because if they're coming without the minister, they are definitely going to do something. And that early day, they brought a truck that actually had teeth in it. You know, the truck that lifts uh, kind of boxes, water boxes, whatever. Uh, Forklifts, yep. They brought that forklift. And then we asked, I said, what is this for? They said, oh, we're moving furniture for the for the minister's office. And the furniture that was in the minister's office were actually Saddam Hussein's furniture. So I'm like, who the hell would take Saddam's best furniture and replace it with some shit from Iraq? You knew that wasn't true. So when that happened, I immediately knew that they were not looking to come out of my checkpoint because they knew they can't come out of it. But they can move a T-wall, and the, they're behind the T-wall, there's a road that goes right straight to the red zone. So I immediately knew that something... Somebody was going to come out of that. And if, if, if someone was going to come out of that wall, it would have to be one of the six Americans that I have inside. So when I ran inside, as I was running to go to the hallway to actually go evacuate the six Americans, I have soldiers of my own teams that immediately made it to them to make sure that they're getting defended. And it, it, our plan was if we, don't, if we can't get out of the building, we take them to the roof until an American KRF come in. And that's our plan is defend them to the last moment and up in the roof. And if they have to jump, they can jump. And that's our plan. So as I'm going in, I sent two of my soldiers to the second floor, even though nobody was supposed to be there after 4 p.m., only for those six Americans. I sent two. I said, clear the second floor. Make sure no one's in the bathroom. No, I said, I just needed to be cleared. So as I'm running, I get a call on the radio. My two soldiers, they said, oh, the locks to the back of the building have been broken because it had a chain on those doors, so nobody can go towards that kind of empty side that goes towards the Tiger River. Nobody can go through that door. I, I lock the building myself, and I only leave like one door or two doors that are open. And they say the chains and the lock is broken. When they told me the chain was broken, I immediately knew which side. It's exactly where the truck was parked. So I knew which wall they were going to move at that point. But who they were going to take out, in my head, was it's the one of these six Americans. I need to get him out. Hamidi has about a dozen of his loyal teammates by his side, and he knows at this point that the 150 well-armed terrorists in the building are coming for one of the six American officers 
and he and his team are ready for the fight of their lives. I had about maybe 12 guys inside. Yeah, they had 150 of them. 150 that showed up. They would have shredded us, most likely. If we came face to face with them, they'll kill us. And I came in, and as I ran inside, they said, and there's a one office that had a light in it, and they said, oh, well, uh, never mind. There's actually an American officer sitting here. When they said there's an American officer sitting here, I immediately knew that the target was not downstairs. It was upstairs. And so I ran back immediately. I got upstairs. And I couldn't believe they were telling me. I said, are you sure it's an American? It's not Brit. It's not an Aussie. It's not because I had different nationalities that were working there. I said, are you sure he's not a civilian advisor? He's not a KBR? And they said, no, no, no. It's an officer in uniform. So I ran up. As soon as I ran up, I actually I saw so an officer in uniform. And I'm sitting, I said, sir, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, I'm, I'm sitting here using my computer. And I said, no, you're supposed to be out by 4 p.m. And it's 11.30. And he's like, oh, I thought I could walk back to Phoenix. And he, uh, he's been in the country for about maybe 10 days. He was not briefed by his replacement correctly about how, how, what to do, how long to stay there. And he just figured I'll just sit down here in the racket department and do my thing. So I immediately said, we have security threat in the building. You need to come with me. I walk him out. As we walk him out through the other side, they're right just on the other side of the hallway, and there's a stairs, and that's where they were coming up from. And you can hear them as you're pulling out in that hallway. You can hear their footsteps literally downstairs moving. And I came out of through the other side of the building. I walked him about halfway, and I said, you see that checkpoint where they're American soldiers? He said, I said, run there. Run. Don't turn around. And if, if they came face-to-face -face with my soldiers, they, we probably have not got out. But the interesting part is that they were trying to do this without firing one bullet because they're there representing the new Minister of Defense. This will blunder their whole cover. This will put the minister in jeopardy. So their only success was to do it is to do it, and nobody knows who did it, and nobody knows anything about them. So I didn't know about half of the details into how they were planning this just assumptions and what they're looking to do. I knew about the rest of the information after we, I met with intelligence agents from the Ambar province. So they came into the room. They realized the light was on. He was not there. They went and checked the bathroom, and they realized there was nobody in the bathroom. And they went and walked around a few rooms, thinking that he's in the surrounding area. But he wasn't. He was with me. Nobody confronted them. Who the hell would want to go meet the 150 guys who was about to do something? No way. So my whole soldiers were protecting the front checkpoint, protecting everything. But if they moved the T-wall and, tr and a truck moved out of that T-wall, there's no way for me to stop them. I, don't, I have only one tower. I mean, what is that going to do? If I order the tower to open fire, th they have an armored vehicle. I mean, th I would do nothing. So what happened was I came back. I took my phone. I called Colonel Burke. Colonel Burke doesn't answer me. Of course, he's sleeping in his trailer in the embassy because that's where he sleeps, at the U.S. embassy. And I'm calling and calling and calling. And I am trying to tell him to, like, don't come to this building. Please just shut down the building. I'm shutting down the building. So finally, Colonel Burke got back to me. He's like, hey, what's going on? Everything okay? I said, yeah, no, but uh, this is what's happening. I said, well, this is what's going on. So Colonel Burke says, okay, and when, how did they move, how, how, how things went down? I said, this is what happened. They came in through this time. He's like, give me all the times. I gave him all the times. So they went back. They had camera footage. They could see 
And Colonel Burke was kind of calm, fine. You know, like he goes, okay, what time did this happen? When did the movement, where did they come from? I said, this is where they come from. They have ID cards. They're doing this. And I said, you can't come back in this building with these guys in it. I'm telling you, do not come in the building. So they went and they actually verified it. And they looked in the camera footage and they didn't realize these guys were moving all this time and planning something. And no one even, even thought about it because it looked like a bunch of Iraqis are moving inside of a building. And once, they, he, once he actually verified it, he called me back in a different tone. It was much more serious tone. It is like an oh shit tone. And Colonel Park was like, I'm going. To, I'm taking this right now to General Casey. I'm taking this to General Betrayus. And we are not coming into the building for sure. So he goes in. He goes to the U.S. leadership, notify them what's happening. Obviously, they show them the footage. He calls me back and he goes... Is like Hamity. Um, we have a ban for seventy-two hours. <laughs> I said, "Well, good for you, but I'm still in this building because I'm here." And I'm like, "My soldiers are are nervous. I'm nervous. One bullet right now gets fired. We're having a battlefield inside of my building." I said, "That's just gonna be insanity." I said, "If you guys don't come right now and detain these guys." I am going to go door to door in this building and I'm going to have a firefight. And I know you probably won't expect to have a firefight inside of the Pentagon, but we're about to have one here in our own. But he said, no, hold, hold. Uh, we're going to take it. I said, you guys, why the hell are you guys not doing anything about it? So the U.S. leadership have pulled all the officers, said, stay here, don't go to the MOD until further notice. They sat down and they tried to figure out, like, how are we going to work with these guys? How are we going to do this? How are we going to build a new Iraqi infrastructure for the Iraqi military without being a threat? Like, what do we have to do? So other intelligent entities got involved. And the information I gave where they're from, where they came from, they said, what do you think they're from? I said, they're from the Ambar province. 1,200 Marines died in the Ambar province. They could have lost some of their cousins for sure. They lost somebody. Each one of these terrorists probably have lost somebody in that fight. I said, at this point, it's a retaliation. Like, this could be bad for us. So we have to do something. And immediately, um, when they, they ordered the ban, and, and they kept everybody, kept aside. And I think about maybe seven, eight hours, not even, I got a phone call. And it was the intelligence officer that working for Colonel Burke, who was a junior intelligence officer. Hamini had a good eye for picking out trouble for spotting trouble and this saved the life of an American military officer and saved the face of the new Iraqi government this didn't go unnoticed by the US intelligence community who now saw Hamity as a valuable asset he said oh Colonel Burke wants you to meet with some people outside so you need to come out of the building go to, to a secure place where no one can see you and you're gonna you know meet with some people and I said who are the people and they're like oh they're civilians I said okay so I came out of the building um, I got on a car, and it was a weird kind of SUV. And a female uh, opened the door for me and said, you know, get in. We're going to take you somewhere. And we drove into a compound inside of the Iraqi, uh, the, the Green Zone area. And they made sure it was a, a base that was no local nationals in it because no one could see me. And truly, it was like a, a creepy place. Like, it looked very creepy. Like, they drove inside of this contracting, kind of civilian contracting uh, contractors. It looked like a Blackwater kind of thing. 
and there was this building that was look like looked like a freaking interrogation place, like forward by Saddam by former government, and a metal door, and they opened it, and then I walked in, and there was like a female, and two males, and they introduced themselves, and they're like, hey, my name is. They introduced themselves by a rank or name, and they're like, hey, you know, come in and. So they sat down with me and they're like, hey, we want to talk to you about what's happening. And I said, who? Who, who are you? And she said, oh, we're, we're an intelligent entities. Well, you know, and she introduced the second person who was actually part of the Marine Corps intelligence. So obviously the second civilian was actually a military guy. But he was in civilian clothes. And, and a third guy was introduced to me. She said he's in from the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I sat down and I said, okay, well, do you guys want to go detain them and where are we going to go after them? And they said, she said, just relax. Let's just talk. And she said, I said, you know, beside being in charge of the most dangerous building in the, in the world, I don't know how many jobs I can do. I said, you know, uh, yes, I'll work for you, but what time do I have other than managing that, uh, you know, uh, shit show that it's happening with Al-Qaeda being inside trying to defend a checkpoint and outside? I said, I, I don't know how much time I can do. So at that point, I didn't understand what's happening. And she looked at me and she said, well, we want you to work for us. And she said, we want to figure out where these individuals come from. And in my head, you know, when someone as an Iraqi and someone says, hey, do you want to work for the U.S. intelligence? This is not a fun thing. This is not a great job offer. This is like you could die. You can cause people around you to die. This is no joke. Being involved with an intelligent entity, that's the last thing you want in Iraq. And at this point, they were looking to take me from this intel asset for the u.s military intelligence and turning them into an agency asset and the practices they use usually the assets dies within a month or so i was going to be put in a very dangerous situation and i would die so i sat down and then she said she said hey don't you care about your friend going home at the end of this store i said i do so i actually promised his wife in one phone call that he gave me the phone to talk to her that he will come home because she was pregnant with their first child and it, it kind of came to the point in my head, I was like, you know, this is my friend. I want him to go home at the end of the store. He has a hope to leave out of this place. I don't. I'm going to die in this war anyway. And there's no, way, there's no way out for me. So I took the job emotionally that I wanted to get the friends that I have inside of the building out end of their tour so they can go home safe. And that's the only reason I said yes. Hamidi took the job knowing that it would most likely kill him, but he figured maybe his hard work could save the lives of some of his friends. He knew that the key to stopping the insurgency inside the MOD would be getting the names of the suspected terrorists in the building. The Al-Qaeda fighters under Sabah Delaney are fighting U.S. Marines out in the Ambar province of Iraq. Then these fighters routinely switch out from the battlefield for some rest and relaxation posing as security detail for the Iraqi defense minister in the Green Zone. These terrorists are now working side by side with U.S. and coalition forces, with official IDs granting them unprecedented access. This was the recipe for a disaster. My first job, she said, I need you to go back and I need you to give me more information about these individuals. And I said, well, I don't have any other ways of getting information. However, they just made Iraqi MOD ID cards. So in order for them to obtain the ID cards, they will provide fingerprints, they will provide picture, first and last name, and address. She said, I need you to go and get all this information. So in order for me to go get it, even though I'm the command sergeant major of the Iraqi MOD, but I don't have a power over the Iraqi personal department. 
This is the civilians that are working doing this process. So, like, how do I do this without anybody notice that I'm collecting info inside of the MOD? My job to protect the building, but never to get involved in any other papers or anything like that. So, there was a chick that I talked to who worked inside of the Iraqi personnel department. And she was actually the one that fingerprinted people and took their pictures. And I came into her and I said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. And I started talking to her. And I said, is there a way I can take the roster of who these guys are, get this information? And she said, sure. She said, I'm not allowed to do that. I said, but, you know, help me out. She said, okay, I'll put it in a flash drive and I'll give it to you. And I went and I actually obtained all their fingerprint, first name, last name. And the idiots actually used their real names. They had about 5,000 names. And I took it. I just gave it to the intelligent agent. The intelligent agent took it. And they had a match, which is the guy who was leading them. His name was Sabah Dulemi. And they all came from the same tribe, a Dulemi tribe, because that's all the Ambar problems. And Sabah Dulemi comes back as a member of a Fidayim, Saddam suicide fighters. And they see this guy, who, which I identified before that for them. And at that point, I'm, I'm young. I am not informed intelligent-wise. I am not trained to, to collect information. To, and I was kind of like a fireball, and they were worried that I would take action. So she sat me down, and she said, look, this is how the intelligent world works. The Marines are heavily engaged. We don't have any leads. Please don't fuck it up for us. Just do what we ask you to do. If you want to see them go down, just do what we're asking you to do. And I, at that point, I realized, okay, this is a different level. I got to do my job to the extent. So I went, collected all the info I need. I gave it to them. And she said, find out for me. Where do they sleep? Where do they do? And when does that individual switch shifts to go home? I said, oh, absolutely, I can do that. And I went and I started figuring out the days they go home, they switch because they come in two groups. One group stays and one group goes back to the umbar. Okay? The ones that goes back to the umbar gets engaged fighting against the Americans. When they want to run them away... They switch with the other group, and the other group comes to the MOD pulling just security job. So this is done on like an Al-Qaeda rest station to come in, do nothing, enjoy a good food, and then we'll bring you back to the Umbar, and then we'll, they'll switch over. What, once they obtain the Iraqi MOD card, if they have kidnapped that American officer, they would never be searched by any checkpoint because they obtained the Iraqi Minister of Defense office ID card. It means any Iraqi military checkpoint will just salute them and tell them, have a good day. So their plan was 99% done correctly professionally. The only problem is, is that there was some guy watching their steps. And they were trying to figure out when they can redo this. So within not even a week, we were 110% sure that they were going to repeat the attempt. They were regrouping, trying to figure out where to go next. Who would be? But this guy, they have notified him. They probably have noticed him five, six times that he did this and stay late, and they decided to take action. So they were looking where they were going to take actions next. And immediately, they decided to take, obviously, a break. And I was only watching the head of that group. And Sabah came in, getting ready to go home. And that's the moment I called him, and I said, he's getting ready to go home. And I, and I, I asked, I said, what happened next? And they were like, oh, none of your business. We'll, we'll tell you later. I didn't realize at that point they have actually used UAV uh, tracking devices on these vehicles. And he left. 
And I watched him leave, you know, outside of the MOD, drive away. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, in my head, I'm like the freaking idiots. And then I didn't hear anything for about four days. And I'm sitting in there looking at these guys inside of the building. And I hear all of a sudden they said, Sabah has been arrested. I said, arrested where? She looked at me. She said, oh, he's gone. Don't worry about him. And I said, what do you mean? Like, no, no, no. I said, I need to know what happened to him. Like, I need to know, is he coming back? Is he going to be a threat? She said, he's gone where he's not going to have a lawyer present. That's what I can tell you. He's gone. And I'm just like, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, did they kill him? Like, did they, did they get him? Like, what, what does that mean? And I didn't know what happened to him back then. I just, I just moved into the next guy. That was it. That was it. Like, you gave Saban and Zun. And at that point, they said, the intelligence team said, okay, we need you to go and build dossiers and build bios of every single person that you see in this building. Every single person, including like Mohan groups, including the Badakor, the Iranian intelligence, the Al-Qaeda. But the, 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 the focus was, number one and number two, was on radical Islamic groups who are actually a threat to an American soldier, a physical threat. Because the Iranians were there. They were part of the Iraqi government. But they were only collecting in you. They were not doing anything against you. Only the Madden militia, Muqtada Sutter guys, they were doing something, but they didn't have any position in the MOD. But we were watching these guys as these guys could be dangerous to the Americans at any point. And that was the routine, is to keep them in that building. Because you're working among the enemy. The enemy is within your building. Hamidi's intelligence worked, and Sabah Delaney was arrested. General Mohan's plans for a coup were frozen, and the terrorists were being weeded out of the MOD. It was only a matter of time before the enemy figured out who was supplying the Americans with intelligence, and Hamity would certainly be targeted for assassination. There was just one target left named Zaid Delaney, who was literally a bomb waiting to go off. When they found out, the way they found out about me is until about 2007, I'm, I'm the command sergeant major of the MOD. When I found that suicide build, that's when things went. When Ziad Delaney, he was an Iraqi colonel who was working in the, in the um, Iraqi Operations Center. He was working with the Americans. He was, a, he was actually in a very, very vital location, actually, of the MOD. He, he obtains a lot of things. And he made a huge concern for me because he lived in an area in Baghdad it's called Adamiya, very high resistance area. He went home every single day. He was not a threat. So it means if Al-Qaeda doesn't kill you and assassinate you in your own neighborhood, what does that tell me about you? You're Al-Qaeda. And what the information I got is his next-door neighbor is one of Al-Qaeda's most wanted men in Baghdad. And I was like, there is no way Ziad would come in out of the MOD every single day. And this guy would not in- eliminate him. So he definitely works for him. And I started watching his movements carefully because these guys... Um, happened to belong to more radicalized groups, Islamic radicalized groups, and and they were dangerous. A lot of them were trained highly in explosive, were trained in, in EOD, engineering, all kind of stuff, and they had unique backgrounds as officers back in the Republican Guard. Some of them been trained in Russia by the KBG during the Iraq-Iran war because they had a deal with Russia, and they went and they trained a bunch of people. So the, the amount of the, the experienced guys are hard to deal with. You know, it's not easy for you to find a dirt on them. And he would come in every single day. 
And I would sit every single day, which is so boring to, for you to sit and watch the footage of this guy walked from the front of the checkpoint to the MOD and how he walked out. So my job is I assigned somebody to be in the inside. That certain gun, amount of guys, they will follow him inside and they will stick with him through the rest of the day. So they, their job was standing there the whole time. But they, he didn't realize they were watching him the whole time. You know what I mean? And, and if he went to someone, that person wouldn't follow him. He would call another guy and the other guy would follow him in the radio. So he, it was kind of more of a disguise kind of thing. We didn't look like we looked at you, but we're actually looking at you. And we just captured it. So it was a random process. Just keep an eye on him. And one of the guys that I have in the building, actually, in that department who I was talking to, he said... Uh, I am losing him a lot. And I said, what do you mean you're losing him? He said, every 45 minutes, he disappears for about 15 minutes. I said, but everybody takes a smoke break. Is he smoking? Because I made a rules as the command sergeant major of the Iraqi MOD that if you smoke, you smoke outside. Because if the ups to the Iraqis, the Iraqis smokes everywhere. So the excuse that I used is I said, if you want to smoke, smoke outside in the balcony. We have one balcony where you can go smoke because the Americans don't like people smoking around them. And I used the Americans as an excuse to please don't smoke in the building. And it was actually to not have him smoke in the building. And I said, great. Um, I will go look in the footage really quick. Um, you know, and that guy was, you know, it was one of my soldiers and intel source that I was using. He was concerned. He's like, I don't know. 15 minutes is a long time to smoke. And he's disappearing like every hour. Every hour or two, he's gone. I can't see where he is in the building. He just goes, he's like, I don't know. You know, he's not going to the bathroom, but there is a locker room inside of the operation center. And that's where they change from civilian clothes to uniform. Because, you know, they're scared. They don't come wearing a uniform. They come inside as civilians, and then they change. They put the uniform, then they take it off, and then they go home. Because, you know, they go home. They pretend like they're regular civilians. And most Iraqi officers would be scared for their lives. So I said, maybe he's in the locker room. I said, I'll go check the footage to see if he's outside smoking. So I go looked at the hours that this source is telling me that this guy is disappearing. But I didn't see him at all. In the, in the footage, he was not smoker. So I had another guy who actually searched him in the front checkpoint. And I went in and I said, hey, when he comes every single day, does he have cigarettes on him? He said, yeah, he does. Every single day he has cigarettes. I said, okay. So where the hell is he smoking them? So my only thing in my head was, okay, he's going to the locker room and he's smoking inside of the locker room. And why is he not coming out to the balcony? I mean, is there because of camera? What, what's the reason? I had to report that back to the U.S. intelligence and say, look, I am losing grip on this guy. He is going to his locker room. I see suspicious movement. So I put a report. I send it. And immediately an intelligence agent back then in charge send it back. And, and at that point, the female was gone. It was somebody else because it was two years later. You know, every year you'll be handed from one intel team to another as the tour ends. And the intel agent says, well, immediately, what, what time does he leave? I said, he leaves around 5. She said, okay, 5.15, you go open that locker. I said, what do you mean? They just said, proper search. You're going to do a security detail. You're going to look into the, the locker. You're going to make sure you clear it. There's nothing in the locker, and let's move from there. So it was a, a normal thing for me to do. I was not expecting to go find anything. And I went back, and I had to go find a lock that actually looked like the same lock that he has is a random thing in Iraq. Locks don't work sometimes, and you just break them and throw them away. So I had to go find the same size lock. Thank God in Iraq, we had one factory back then that made them. So you, you, you don't have any hard time buying It's the same lock. You buy it everywhere. And I went and bought the lock the same size. I brought a lock cutter. 
And I went in. And I was like, okay, I'm going to search it. I'm going to lock it. He's going to come. And he's going to realize that his lock is broken. So I opened it. I saw the uniform. So I checked the, the, the backs, everything. And as I checked the, you know, the, the pockets, there was nothing. Looked like, you know. I moved the uniform a little bit. And as I moved the uniform, there were some officers on duty. And then I'm not supposed to be seen there. So my soldiers were keeping an eye to make sure that nobody comes towards me in that room. And I walk in, and I sneaked in, and I opened that. And I checked everything. And before I really slammed the door, you know, to close the door and, and lock it and, and, and move, I put my hands behind, and I felt something behind the uniform. And when I felt it, I was like, okay. I The one thing went in my head, I was like, okay, they, she, they're going to ask me if I have checked this back. And, of course, I have to check it. So I took it out. It was, it was like something I needed to do fast. I took it out. I put it in the ground. And I actually dropped it. Like I dropped it. And I was like, what the hell does he keep it in there? And I opened it. And I opened it. It's the first thing came in my face is the smell of the tobacco, like the, the, the tobacco inside of the cigarettes. And it was a bunch of smashed tobaccos and cigarettes and pockets. You know, like it's just things were like a mess. And when I opened it, you look way inside of the back, there is something round going around the back. So I put my hands, and I feel it's a military belt, but it's heavy. You know, it's a, it's a proper Iraqi military belt that's about maybe four to five inches wide. They put around the uniform. And when I went to want to lift it, I feel like all these bags were kind of around it. They looked like a battle bags, like a battle zone bags. But he wasn't a battle, sol- battle zone soldier. He, he just wore the uniform. That's it. And I lifted, took it out. That's when I saw the C4 was all wrapped up around it. And when I saw that, I, I, at that point, I, I just, you know, if I tell you, I think my brain just went in my toes at that point. When I saw the C4 and I saw like the the wiring and at that point I was afraid that they could have actually attached it to the locker where it could have blown in my face. Many things went through my head at that point. I mean that point a minute I'm looking at it I'm like is it going to blow up on me? What's going to happen? And my hands I wanted to really like I think the way my brain would you know give orders to my hands I couldn't move my hands. I put it down and I'm looking at it and I'm like, it's a, it's a suicide belt that I'm looking at and it's not any suicide belt. It's wrapped, loaded. And I didn't know at that point, I was like, pick up the phone and I called and I said, I have a suicide belt. And they're like, is there Americans behind the wall? Yes. And they're like, hit the emergency button now. Get them out. So I, I hit the emergency button and everybody thought it was a fire in the building. Because that's the fire alarm that kind of you hit. So I hit the fire alarm. And people were like, what's going on? And I called my soldiers and I get everybody out. All these guys inside, the people on duty, get them out. So it was the middle of the night, that kind of thing. Like evenings, kind of nobody knows. Nobody's there. Everybody left the building. But you have those few Americans and a few Iraqis on the duty. But you don't know who the Iraqis are on the duty. And you don't know who they work for. So I hit it. And I said, what am I doing with this? Like, I don't know how to carry it. I don't know what to do with it. And they're like, just take the bag and meet us outside. And it was the shittiest order I've ever seen in my life. So I have to take it. Yeah, I took it. And I, I walked it through the other side. And uh, EOD specialists came in and, and they took it and they looked at it. And they said, hey, lucky you that, you know, that this was not attached to something. You, you could have died. And I looked and I'm looking inside and they'll see the smashed cigarettes in the back. And I was like... 
how the hell is he getting into my building? Like, the one thing that was killing me is like, this guy brought C4 every single day in my building, and I never noticed it. And I had people searching him every single day, but they never noticed it either. So what it looked like was, it was the cigarettes was cut in half. And they made a little space inside the cigarettes box. And I don't know how many of them were doing that or passing him cigarettes boxes. And he will come every single day. And whether it's him or somebody else, I don't know. But they came in. And if when you take the cigarettes out of the box, it is not a long cigarette. It's a very short one. And they done it so well. And it looked like they, they had a factory that actually wrapped it with plastic. So some of them might not look like an open cigarette box that's open. But way deep inside of it, there's a small amount of C4. And he was attaching it, and he was trained to do that. He was trained on how to, do, how to use explosive. And I, I hit the emergency button, and a few of the Iraqi officers on the duty saw my face. Looked at me and just kind of saw the Americans talking to me and everybody outside and this whole thing. And phone calls were made immediately. I don't know where they were made. They got made, and it looked like they, they knew somebody was watching them. They knew somebody was collecting on them based on what happened to Mohan, based on what, things that are happening inside of the MOD. They knew someone is working for the Americans, but they don't know who it is. And I think at that point, they figured out the puzzle. And the Intel team said, hey, you know, if I was you, I would leave this building right now. They're like, yeah, you, you might be an Iraqi soldier. You may be protected. You might not go home. They said, but these guys now, they have one focus, and it's you. And I just looked at him and said, you know, this is all I know. This is what I'm doing. I'm going to stick right here, and whatever happens, happens. I'm going to stay here. I have nowhere to go. So I went back, and normal days, things happen. Um, there's about 4,000 Iraqi employees that walks into this building every single day. And you don't know most of them. A lot of them. Yeah, at that point. But it's a big building. Look like it's like the Pentagon size. And you come in, and between all the people that works inside, the team makers and the security guards and the employees and the administrators and all that, it's really close to about 3,500 to 4,000 people. And it's loaded. If you walk inside of there, it looks like a bazaar, for God's sake. Oh, lots of people. And, I, and I, at that point, I just kind of like, okay, uh, what is my next move? So I said, I said, as long as I don't move anywhere, I'm good. Uh, the biggest worry for me was, uh, you know, maybe with it, someone with a suicide belt or someone can shoot me to get rid of me. Um, something in the checkpoint, a sniper. They have tried a lot of things. Perhaps we have an Iraqi general who was the, uh, the deputy of the Iraqi Joint Staff, who was from England. He, w- he was living in England and came and came back to the Iraqi military. Because he was a pilot that airstrike to Iran, a sniper from outside of the MOD shot right at his window. And his window was not a clear window. It was a colored window. Nobody can see what's inside. But someone from inside measured where his chair is to get him. And you know where the bullet went? It went by his ears. And the only time he moved, the only reason he moved the wrong way from that chair, someone went inside and saluted him, and he just moved out of the chair. And the bullet went by his ears. His name is Nasir Labadi, General Nasir Labadi. He was a pilot that airstruck Iran back in the 80s. And then ran out of Iraq during the 90s and came back after the 03 and became the deputy of the Joint Chief of Staff. They tried to kill him. And you don't know for what was it for that because he was a pro-American. He was a friendly with Americans. He spoke English. So imagine if that guy 
almost died. And now they knew that I'm, an, I'm a U.S. intelligent uh, asset, a spy that's watching them. You know, at that point, it's just at that point, I was preparing myself for death. I was like, I'm going to die at this point. Every terrorist organization in Iraq is right now has animosity against you. They want you dead. And at this point, I'm going to die anyway. Which one is going to give me? I don't know. But the best one of them will. And some of them, have, they're very creative. They, they can do things. They, they'll shock you. Just like how they shocked me with the suicide bill, they'll shock me. And I sat there and I decided like, okay, where would I go? I don't have anywhere to go. And I'm just going to stay here, do my job, do what I have to do. And until about, you know, people were dying outside. Iraqi officers who are not below, who is not part of any organization go outside. They don't come back. They get shot. They don't come back. And one of my team members went out, and he said, "Oh, I haven't been home in months, man. He said, I need to go home. I see my kids, and I didn't have children or anything. I didn't understand that. I said, you know, well, if you go, go, go and come back the same day, and go through a different checkpoint, go through the green zone, get out, and um, just let me know where you are." And I'm not afraid at that point because I'm thinking all the eyes are on me. And, you know, as long as he goes away, for me, he's safe. So he left, and it was exactly 14 minutes after he left. He got shot in the head with two bullets. And we got calls on the Iraqi army uh, radio. They were passing information and said, oh, there is a, a shooting, an assassination in Baghdad. It was a normal thing that happens every day. And some of the Iraqi soldiers recognized them. And they called the unit and they think this is an Iraqi soldier. And then they looked at the wallet, they found his ID card. And when my, the unit got called, um, I got the, the radio call and they said, hey, we need you to come. And my teammates, I can see in their face, you know, when they called me, they're like, you know, th you need to come and, and uh, this is not good. And when I went, and I saw, you know, him, he was laying in the ground. This happened fast. I tried to figure out how long the time took when it happened. I was like, basically, so it took him 14 minutes. It means they weren't just waiting outside. They actually watched him leave. Oh, they, they probably watched him talking to me. And at that point, when I looked left and right around me, I didn't know how many eyes were on me. I didn't know. So many people. I didn't know, like, which one it is that's looking at me. And... It was a message kind of like to say, look, we will continue until we get you. You'll leave out of this building. And you can see in their face at that point that every time I stood in that checkpoint every morning, when they pass by me, the, the look is different. The look from them looking at you is different. They knew, they knew from people coming in. You knew that look. And I see the look in their eyes looking at me, and I was like, I know. At this point, all the ones that didn't know now know, and I know that immediately from the look in the face. And I stood there, and I realized if I stayed, um, I'll probably get a lot of people hurt. And my teammates at the time said, you know, this is a war. We'll stick here by you. Um, and I knew that married people would go home. They're going to go on to see their kids. And at this point, I was like, if I don't end this war, it will not end. And I might be ready to pay the price, but what are they really, should they really pay that price? And at that point, I, I, I felt like, you know, I felt like a coward leaving because I was pulling out of a fight. But if I didn't pull out, 
those poor guys would get killed and their families would go to shit. So at that point, I realized that I need to leave. And the U.S. intelligence had gave me that advice a year in, in advance that I needed to leave. There's no joke here. And uh, I had to make my my leaving smooth. I had to make sure nobody knew I was leaving. Um, and I went to my office. I burned my stuff, pictures and files and things that are really important that I couldn't carry with me. I put them behind the building and I carried them. Uh, and I just burned, you know, burned them, put some gas on them and burned them. And I uh, got on my uh, motorcycle and uh, I took my guns. And I drove out, and my soldiers, I told my soldiers, I'll be back in five minutes. I said, I'm just heading back to the green zone, just like my normal day. I'll head back to the green zone to get some chow and get some food and come back. I left, and I went back. Yeah. That's it. Last day of me in uniform, man. Yeah. Nobody knew anything. I just disappeared out of the racket military, out of the face of Earth. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know... There were so much details to it. I wanted to come out with knowing much more and giving like last massive report on what's what's going on. And I knew that fighting them physically in the war, I wasn't causing them much harm. But the only way I ever caused them harm is when I was collecting info and passing back to the Americans. Because they, where did they enjoy their part is they enjoyed their part where the Americans didn't, couldn't figure things out. And... and I am. I was the key tool that figured things out and tr- and encoded these things for the Americans to know what's happening. And when I left, um, I was just at that point. I I had no clue, no picture of what's happening in my life. I didn't know where I was gonna go. I didn't know what's next for me. I'm a wanted man by the whole country. That's that's all I knew. And I left Iraq in 2008. Uh, I came here. Uh, some of them thought I was dead. Um, I went to the uh, hospital in the in the green zone, and they they were told that I died, so they can leave me alone. And um, it was it was a tough moment. I think for me, like the last day in uniform was the hardest. You know, it was not a deployment; it was a five year of war. And you're taking that uniform and you hang it, and it's done. I was you know, like, it it was just, it was just that you know. Historically, I'm like, hey, I took a major part in that war. Uh, this enemy has never had that damage. And perhaps in history, they never had a 19-year-old that kicked their ass. And I did it. And one other part, I said, this was my career. This is this is what I came in. This is what I came to do. And now I'm leaving it, you know, behind. So I hang my uniform and I left. And uh, I think I shared with you in a, a declassified document uh, last night. And you saw that, you know, 16 years ago, this was a big deal. This was a very high level information. I don't know where it went, who made a decision in it. And perhaps uh, 50% of my story, I didn't know about it until about 2016 when the documentary started being sh- it went started. There's, I never knew where the information went. Uh, first time, the first time I found out my information went to the presidential debriefing, it was when uh, I was writing the book. And I, I asked for every single, uh, you know, intelligent agent to give me their take and what my role was and what I was doing. And, and truly, I never knew my power until about 2015. So at that point, I didn't think anything I was doing was any important. And uh, it was just part of my job. I was like, yeah. 
And that concludes Hamidi Jazim, the Terrace Whisper story. We have one more episode that's going to be out uh, in a few months, and that is how Hamidi made it from the gates of the MOD on his motorcycle to the United States. It's not included here because it's a, a completely different story, and, and I think it's an important story to tell, and that is of the Iraqi allies who were helping out the U.S. war effort. Most of them had a harrowing and very hard journey to get them back to the United States. So thank you for listening to his story. Check him out at theterroristwhisperer.com. Go over to YouTube and, and check him out. Just put in The Terrorist Whisperer. And um, yeah, check out his book. And also you can watch The Terrorist Whisperer on Amazon Prime. So you can check that out too. Uh, big thanks to Hamity. Big thanks to Revival 1869 for letting us do the interview there. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>